helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. Does anyone else remember the Dire Straits song, Money for Nothing? I think of that song just about every time I hear some people talk about the national debt, the debt ceiling, and the claim that we just need to raise the debt ceiling without worrying about spending. Now, there are probably plenty of people out there who want to just ignore the impact of our profligate spending in Congress and just, well, just keep borrowing money and spending freely. They act like they get their money for nothing, but it is we the people who eventually pick up the tab. I wrote about this problem in a recent article on ConstitutionStudy.com, but even in the last few days, the rhetoric and fiscal irresponsibility has only gotten worse. Will our employees in Washington, D.C. ever get their fiscal act together? Or is the U.S. dollar doomed to become nothing more than monopoly money? Hello there, everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study, where we read and study the Constitution. We teach the rising generation to be free. I'm so glad you could join me today. You know, this is one of those things where I doubt that our our founding fathers ever considered the state of fiscal irresponsibility we currently find ourselves. They 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 didn't even they never thought that um, Congress would become so profligate in their spending. Now you'll also find this article and the video, by the way, on AmericaOutloud.com. When I turned sixteen, I wanted a car, just like pretty much every other American teenage boy. When I asked my father for financial help getting my first car, he told me that if I didn't get the money myself, I wouldn't value the car. I didn't like that answer, but as Thomas Paine said in The American Crisis, what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. Turns out my father was wise to make me work for my first car. We are not here today to talk about teenagers and their cars, but of the trillions of dollars the United States spends each and every year. First, we should ask if our employees in Washington, D.C. are spending our money wisely. Or like some spoiled rich brat, are they treating our hard-earned cash like monopoly money? Once we answer that, the next obvious question is, do we cut up Uncle Sam's credit card before all 330 million of us are bankrupt? If we're going to talk about money in the federal government, we need to start at the beginning with the Constitution and the powers delegated to the United States. The first two clauses of Article 1, Section 8 read, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, impost excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Congress also has the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. So Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, but only for three specific purposes to pay the debts of the United States, provide for the common defense of the United States, and for the general welfare of the United States. Congress also has the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. So all those are with a capital U and a capital S, a proper noun, not the several states of the people, but the union of states known as the United States. Not only can Congress collect taxes and borrow money, but they have the power to spend money as well, from Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7. 
no money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. The situation we are talking about today is very simple. When Congress passes laws to appropriate money from the treasury that's more than what's collected in taxes, Congress must borrow the difference. I know, that seems pretty simple, but based on recent discussions, articles, and press conferences, this simple fact is not only lost on Congress and the entire federal government, but on the people as well, which is how we get reports like this. So taking a look at the monthly budget review from the Congressional Budget Office for March of 2023, we read, the federal budget deficit was $1.1 trillion in the first half of fiscal year 2023. The Congressional Budget Office estimates $430 billion more than the shortfall recorded during the same period last year, and consistent with projections CBO released in February. The deficit, which is the difference between money spent and taxes collected, is the amount that the United States has to borrow to make up the difference. This is not to be confused with the national debt, which is the accumulations of all the deficits over time, also known as the money Congress has borrowed on the credit of the United States. How did we get to this particular situation? Outlays were 13% higher and revenues were 3% lower from October through March than during the same period in fiscal year 2022. Okay, a fiscal year is an accounting period of time. The United States runs on a fiscal year that starts on October 1st every year. That means that the budget for 2023 ends on September 30th, 2023, rather than de December 31st. It may seem a little confusing, but explains why the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, is reporting data starting in October rather than January. Now, all this means is that Congress appropriated money that authorized the Treasury Department to spend for the fiscal year 2023, and the actual money spent in the first half of that fiscal year was 13% higher than in 2022. Also, the actual collection of taxes Congress authorized by law during that same period was 3% lower than last year. Just like for your home budget, if expenses go up while income goes down, then you have to borrow money to pay the bills. In the case of Congress, they just borrowed $1.1 trillion. And they did so on the credit of the United States. Now, I did a little quick math. The $1.1 trillion that Congress had to borrow will cost the American people approximately an additional $13.8 billion every year in interest payments. And that's if the interest rate doesn't change very much. I don't know about you, but that sounds like serious money to me. While most Americans would put these budget shortfalls on their credit cards, Congress does not have a literal American Express card on which to charge this. The details of how the federal government actually borrows money is beyond the scope of our talk today, but it's important to know a few basic concepts. Since only Congress can borrow money on the credit of the United States, they must authorize such borrowing by law. This is commonly known as the debt limit and can only be changed by law, meaning Congress must pass a bill and the president must sign it. Think of it as the credit limit on your credit cards. If you keep borrowing money by charging it to your credit card, sooner or later the bank will say, that's enough. Similarly, as the federal government keeps borrowing money to spend on their profligate spending programs, sooner or later, the American people through their representatives in the House and the states through their representatives in the Senate will also say, that's enough. Or at least we would hope so. Which is why every time in history that the federal government's borrowing has approached the debt limit, Congress simply raises it. I don't know about you, but if I was maxing out my credit cards every couple of years, I'd take a serious look at my budget. 
Sure, there are some things I can do to increase my income, but the first place I'd look is at my spending. Take a look at federal receipts and outlays in the 21st century. These, by the way, come from Statista.com. Do you see how federal spending, with rare exceptions like the end of COVID, almost always seem to go up? Yes, the revenue frequently goes up as well, but rarely as fast as the spending. This continuous increase in spending is nothing new. Neither is it limited to a single political party. Just look at the increase in spending under some of the more recent presidential administrations. Again, from Statista. This last graph shows one of the more common misunderstandings of America's budget crisis. Presidents do not appropriate money. Congress does. Remember Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7? No money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law? That means the people most responsible for authorizing the ever-increasing spending is Congress. That also means the representatives of the people and the states are authorizing this spending. Since the people elect members to both houses of Congress, that means we are responsible for putting the people in place that have created this disaster. And yet, at the end of 2022, our national debt was just short of $31 trillion. Now compare that to our gross domestic product, or GDP, which is the sum of all goods and services sold in the United States in 2022, which came in at $21,461,300,000,000, give or take. That means if we took every dollar in goods and services made in the United States and applied it to the debt, we would still have almost $10 trillion of debt still outstanding. That would be like taking your entire paycheck before taxes and deductions, sending it to the credit card company, and still having a six-figure balance. Unfortunately, nothing currently going on in Congress will change any of that. The need to set a budget is not a surprise to Congress. It's written in the law. Neither is the need for appropriations bills or the debt ceiling. The dates of these events are known to each and every Congress at the beginning of the session. Yet year after year, these men and women simply wait until the last minute and then find a way to kick the can down the road. Not all members of Congress are this derelict in their duties, but the majority of them are. And every two years, these members of Congress lie to the American people that they will fix what they see as the problem. But they never seem to propose any solutions that would actually do so. And the American people blindly follow these fiscally malfeasant actors down the path to destruction. Which leads me to a little news article you may not have seen. On ABC's This Week, George Stephanopoulos, during an interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, repeatedly asked about calls for the White House to invoke the 14th Amendment to allow the Treasury to continue borrowing money even if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. Now, how is that supposed to work? Well, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment reads, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection and rebellion, shall not be questioned. Those who are claiming that the executive branch can get around Congress's pesky debt limit problem by invoking the 14th Amendment have apparently missed one or two little phrases. First, no one is questioning the debt. The question is, will Congress authorize by law additional debt, which is the second problem for those looking for a non-legislative solution. Any debts incurred outside of congressional action are not authorized by law, and therefore their validity would not be subject to the 14th Amendment. Since the Constitution only delegates the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States to Congress, remember Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2? 
any attempt by the Treasury Department to borrow money beyond Congress's authorization would be void and of no effect. At least that's what the Supreme Court said in the 1886 case Norton v. Shelby County. An unconstitutional act is not a law. It confers no rights, it imposes no duties, it affords no protection, it creates no office. It is, in legal contemplation, as an operative as though it had never been passed. So where does that leave us? With all the finger-pointing back and forth between the Houses of Congress, the Presidency, and the Department of Treasury, the ones truly responsible for this mess is we the people. Yes, we have hired representatives that have spent more than they collected in taxes for decades. We did so because we thought we could get goods and services from government and not have to pay for them. In short, the American people have been incredibly greedy for decades, and the chickens are coming home to roost. We asked Congress to collect taxes for more than paying the debts and providing for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But we asked them to appropriate far more than we would let them collect. With each new program, service, subsidy, and entitlement, we told our representatives to simply charge it, figuring someone else would have to pick up the tab. Well, that game of musical chairs is coming to an end, and it appears this generation is the one without a place to sit. The only reason the United States is not bankrupt is because people around the world keep lending us money or the Federal Reserve makes it up out of thin air, further devaluing the dollar and pushing us deeper into this fiscal crisis. Like a drunk who wards off his hangover by drinking more, we've kept this party going far longer than reason would allow. Someday, just like that drunk, the United States will get cut off by the world. In fact, I think it's already starting to happen as more and more nations agree to do business together in something other than U.S. dollars. The world trusted us to be their reserve currency, and they're starting to realize we were not up to the challenge. Regardless of where you stand on the current debt crisis, if we the people don't demand our public servants get our fiscal house in order, then our economic future is bleak indeed. For those of you who think we can continue this charade, that we can fix this crisis without spending cuts, I remind you that we've tried that for the last 70 years and it hasn't worked out. As Mr. Einstein put it, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So as much as we would like to point the finger at, at different members of Congress or, or at the president or even Treasury Secretary Yellen, it's really up to us, we the people, to decide when and if we will get off this crazy merry-go-round, this, this treadmill of doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that it'll somehow magically fix itself. And of course, when I wrote this article, I, I knew there would be more, right? Because I've been through enough of these debt crisis battles to kind of anticipate what's coming next. But even some of the stuff I've heard since then, it makes me, makes me shake my head. But I have to take a break before I get there. Before I do, though, I'm going to ask you to head over to the website constitutionstudy.com. That's where all the information about the Constitution study is, is there. You can sign up for my mailing list. You can ask a question. You can check out my other articles and videos. And hey, if you're interested in my Patriots program, I'm starting it up this summer. It's going to be a series of, of tools, actually uh, several tracks that are designed to help people and organizations be better. In other words, I'm not trying to replace whatever it is people are doing 
but I want to give them tools to enhance it, to make sure they have the education, the communications tools, and the people that will stand up and help fight against the tyrannies that are coming all around us. So please check it out. Go to constitutionstudy.com. You'll find the, the Patriots post at the top of the page. And if you're interested, please register for updates. You're not signing up for anything quite yet other than to get updates about the program as it's coming to life. So please do that. Now, hopefully, this program and, and the stuff I talk about on the on the Constitution, hopefully, it doesn't put you to sleep. But if you're like millions of people that have a hard time falling asleep, maybe I have something that'll help you. You see, Healthy Cell is a leading innovator in supplements designed to work at the cellular level. And they have a product called REM Sleep. It helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply so you can wake up refreshed and ready to go. It is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. And as an America Out Loud listener, you can get 25% off your first order. All you have to do is go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. So please, go to HealthyCell.com, check out, try, try all of their products. REM sleep, uh, uh, immune super boost, or uh, the focus and recall. Look at any of the products, put your card together. When you check out, use that code OUTLOUD. It helps them know that, that you're listening to America Out Loud. And as a thank you, well, they'll give you 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. 
The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Welcome back, everyday Americans. You rejoin the Constitution study, and today we're talking about, well, monopoly money. We're talking about the idea that we can get money for nothing, and that's the way our government has been running, because the people we hire to represent us in our government act like money costs nothing, like it's monopoly money. In the first half, I talked about an article I wrote that went into a little more details, and there's some background to it. And I included that because I understand not everybody understands the terms here, and especially when these terms are misused so often. For example, recently, Treasury Secretary Yellen was in Niigata, Japan, at the uh, G7 conference um, when she made, a, a, well, an interesting statement. See, in her prepared remarks, she called on Congress to raise the $31.4 trillion federal debt limit, but she said to do so in order to avert the U.S. government default, and that would trigger a global economic crisis. I- I'm sorry, this is the, the fiscal equivalent of a criminal threatening your family and say, if you don't do what I tell you to, they're going to get hurt and it'll be your fault. All right, let's start with, some, with, with, again, some numbers. We're talking a debt limit of $31.4 trillion. And I know, People have a hard time understanding really large and really small numbers. So let me give you an ex- a couple of examples to see if it makes sense. $31.4 trillion is the numbers 314 with 11 zeros after it. You are talking a 15-digit number. I mean, it's absolutely huge, but l- let me give you another example. So if you were to take $100 bills and you were to stack $100 bills into a giant stack, if you take $1 trillion in $100 bills and stack them, that stack would be higher than the orbit of the national of the International Space Station. That's $1 trillion. That's over 256 miles high, and we're talking 31.4. That's a stack of $100 bills over 8,000 miles long. That means if you were to lay them on their side, they would cross the continental U.S. from east coast to west coast about two and two-thirds times. So we're talking ginormous amounts of money. But she says, uh, we, we need to raise this, again, back to Janet Yellen, or the government will default well, my first question is, default on what? Because these claims that if we don't raise the debt limit, we're going to default on our debt is a bald-faced lie. All the, the uh, Hitting the debt limit simply means we cannot borrow any more money. Legally, we can't borrow any more money. It doesn't mean that tax revenues stop coming in. It doesn't mean that, that uh, the Treasury Department doesn't have money to spend. It just is going to limit the amount of money it's it can spend. Now, that means something has to get trimmed, right? If you get to the end of the month and you got more bills than you have cash, then you have to decide which bills you're not going to pay. And the only reason 
to not pay the debt on the on, on our the interest on our debt, make our debt payments. The only reason to do that is to kick the American people squarely in the butt. I'm serious. It's it's no different than do you remember during the government shutdown when the Obama administration would go out of their way to shut down parks? You remember they they had a wide open park and they started putting barricades across the park. They actually spent money to close certain parks in order to make the American people piss because they they thought it would blame Congress for it. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Again, come June 1st, which is when the Treasury Department thinks they're going to run out of, of borrowing capacity, doesn't mean the Treasury Department has run out of money. But remember, we are in this mess because for decades... Congress has authorized spending far beyond their means. I was at a, a town hall recently for my um, county commissioner. And of course, we were talking about taxes. And it was very interesting because one of the commissioners was talking about, um, well, you know, you collect taxes and you, it's, it's county taxes. And then there's money from the state that's related to the taxes. And she's talking all about this. And I, I looked her straight in the eye and I said, you got everything backwards. So you're looking to see how much money you can collect, and then you're going to decide what you can spend it on. Should be the other way around. So you should be, what do the people legally authorize the federal government to do? Then how do we pay for it? The problem is twofold. Right? One is, we the people have asked the federal government to pay for things it's not legally authorized to do. Social Security, Affordable Care Act, Medicare, Medicaid, Department of Education, Department of Energy, all these grants, the CDC, the FDA, uh, all of these programs, SNAP, all of these programs are not under the purview of the federal government. Uh, for example, the, uh, uh, in 2022, which is the last fiscal year we have data for, the federal government spent about $1.2 trillion dollars on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Right? Those are three programs that are not authorized by the Constitution. These are fraudulent programs. They spent $1.2 trillion of your money. Maybe if we didn't spend that money that they weren't authorized to, we wouldn't be at this debt crisis we're on right now. What's interesting is they spent, so they spent $1.2 trillion on illegal programs to bribe people to vote for them. That's why they have the Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Give people stuff to get their votes. The, um, but the Department of Defense, something actually authorized by the Constitution, they spent $358 billion, one-fourth of what they spend on these little programs. And right now, the, the interest in the national debt is projected to be $308 billion, which means... At the rate we're going in a couple of years, we're going to spend more to pay off the debt, the interest on the debt, than we are to protect our homeland with the military. Ladies and gentlemen, this is just crazy. This is fiscally irresponsible, but we keep doing it. Why do we keep doing it? Because we believe we can get money for nothing. We believe the, the members of Congress, and they say, um, We'll start this program and somebody else will pay for it. But we also get it from stupid stuff. For example, um, 
Biden has said repeatedly that he decreased the debt 1.1 or 1.2 trillion dollars. Well, that's a lie. He did decrease the deficit by one by a little over a trillion dollars, but that's because they had increased the deficit four trillion dollars a year before. So let me do this. Um, if uh, if you give me four trillion dollars. And then I turn around next week and I, if you give me, let me do this. If you give me $400 one week and next week I get, I, I only take a 2.9 or $290. Have I saved $110? No, I've only spent, I've only borrowed a little less than I had to before, but that's the irrational illogic of all of this nonsense. So what is secretary Yellen's solution to this problem because you remember all she cares about is she wants more money because her job is to pay the bills i mean she's a treasury secretary her job is to take the money that congress has collected in taxes and to spend it on the things congress has authorized through appropriations this is not secretary yellen's fault i blame her for some of her stupid reactions to this but we are not in this mess because of Secretary Yellen. We are in this mess because of we the people and our representatives in Congress. So what is Secretary Yellen's solution to this, uh, this fiscal insanity? Simply get rid of the spending, the, the borrowing cap. Simply have the Congress tell the Treasury, borrow as much money as you want. Spend it. Go, just go ahead. Just borrow like crazy. Now think of it this way. If, if if we were to analogize this to uh, a, an individual, a family, we would say that, well, the U.S. government is addicted to money. The same way uh, a, a drug addict is addicted to drugs, heroin, marijuana, alcohol, you name it. So let me ask you, have you ever had a friend that had a drinking problem? And was your solution ever to say, here, here's an unlimited credit card. You buy as much booze as you want. Have, have you ever heard of an AA program that started out with whatever you do, you go buy as much booze as you want? I know I haven't. But that is Secretary Yellen's suggestion to deal with this problem. Again, for her, I kind of understand why she doesn't want to have to deal with the budget cap anymore. With I'm sorry, with the, the, the debt ceiling anymore. It's a pain in her backside. But that is one of the most fiscally irresponsible statements I think I've ever heard. Because right now, what is going on right now? Right now, there is a battle going on, a, an ethical battle, a battle of ideas between the House, the Senate, and the President. Now, the House looks at this and says, we have a spending problem. All we're doing by raising the debt ceiling is kicking this problem down the road. This would be an excellent time to start curbing some of our spending. We've got leverage. We have this debt ceiling. You want to increase the debt, you must become more fiscally responsible. It's kind of like a, a parent telling a child, you know, um, if you want to go out Saturday night, then you have to pass the test Friday afternoon in school. Now, obviously, the, the, the Senate, they don't like this idea. And in fact, the president, Joe Biden, has insisted on what he calls a, a clean bill. Why? I believe because he doesn't want to take responsibility for their profligate spending. He likes spending other people's money. It's fun. It gets him all sorts of accolades. And let's face it, 
What, where, how is there an easier way to bribe the American people to vote for him and his fellow Democrats than giving away money that they claim comes from somewhere else? It doesn't, ladies and gentlemen. Every dollar borrowed costs money. As I said, three hundred. They expect, they're anticipating $300 billion just to pay the interest on the money we've already borrowed. So like a child that's sitting there going at the candy store going, I'm just going to keep eating candy. I'm going to keep eating candy. Well, you keep eating candy, you're, you're going to spoil your dinner. I don't care. I'm just going to keep eating candy. You keep eating candy, you're not going to be all able to go out and play tonight because you're going to be sick. I don't care. Just keep eating candy. That's the logic. That's the reason that's going on behind this. Now, I'm not real thrilled with all the proposals I've seen from either side, but let's face this. The, the um, America's economy is sick. And part of the reason it is sick is because we've been sucking down candy bars like there's no tomorrow. And until we realize that this is dangerous and we need put we put some controls on it, some restrictions on it, some limitations on it, we're just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. It, you know, it's like we've got diabetes and we're and we're tossing down donuts and and yoo-hoo all day. Sooner or later they're going to be cutting off body parts because of the disease that's being caused by the overindulgence. It's pretty much the same thing. See, the only reason this works is because people keep lending money to the United States. Well, if you look at a $31.4 trillion deficit, I'm sorry, debt, not deficit, get the numbers right, a $31.4 trillion debt, a debt that is almost 50% larger than our entire gross domestic product, sooner or later, people are going to look at that saying, I'm not sure this is a safe place to lend my money. I'm not going to invest in them how long before they just default, which means the only way you're going to get people to borrow this money is to offer them higher interest rates. There's got to be a reward for the risk. And pretty soon that spirals out of control. I don't know if that's going to happen this year, this decade, this century. I don't know when, but it's reasonable that that it's going to happen. And and there are signs that... um, People are losing trust in the U.S. dollar. I'm seeing more and more reports of countries agreeing to do business in something other than U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar has been the international reserve currency since the end of World War II. Basically, it said everybody agreed we are going to do international business using U.S. dollars. And and it was very beneficial to us, right? Because that meant if if you're... Let's say you're Saudi Arabia and you've got uh, a boatload of oil to sell and you want to send it, sell it to, oh, I don't know, uh, South Africa. They agreed, hey, we'll just do it in dollars, right? So uh, South Africa will sell whatever they've got. They'll get U.S. dollars. They will give them to the Saudis for their oil. That means there are dollars in circulation that helps keep our inflation low, it helps us borrow money. It means, you know, we have a lot of inf- of we have a lot of resources, a lot of influence. So what happens when Russia and Saudi Arabia or China and and some of the other countries say, you know what? Rather than doing business in dollars, how about we just do them in, I don't know, reals, in in in, in the yuan or in any other currency? See, once these countries stop trusting the United States dollar as a reserve currency, two things happen. 
It shows that they are less likely to lend us money because they're worried about our, the value of our dollar. But as fewer and fewer dollars are moving around in international circulation, that is a release valve on the pressure of inflation. And when you close off that release valve, that means more pressure for inflation, which hits you right in the pocketbook. Now, I want to talk a bit more about this after the break, but before I go, I want to remind you, you know, the Constitution study is just one of several voices heard on America Out Loud Talk Radio. So please, do like I do. Make AmericaOutloud.com a daily stop for news and information about what's going on in the world. Get information from different points of views, conflicting points of views, and then do your research. See, it's more important than ever that we find out information that for ourselves, that we track down this data because, let's face it, media is lying to us. But then it's just as important that we share this information. You take the stories, the videos, the articles, the podcasts, share them with friends, share them with family, share them on the internet. Because if it's information that is not being shown by corporate media, how else are these people going to be aware of what else is going on? So if you want to secure the blessings of liberty, one of the ways is to help share this information and these different points of view. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution study. Today we're talking about, well, this idea of money for nothing. Before we went to the break, I hinted about, or started talking about inflation and the, the fact that it's, it's money out of your pocket. Now, if I ask most people, what is inflation? They say, it's, well, it's the increase in price of goods and services. But that's not entirely correct. 
I say not entirely because it's the, it's the increase in price in goods and services in a single specific currency. What do I mean? See, what inflation really is, is it's the devaluing of a currency. I remember reading this article, oh God, it's got to be 15 years ago now, about a, a study done with the price of a median, the average home, U.S. home, in $1950 versus $2000 and uh, the increase in price but they did the same study they said well what did it cost in gold in 1950 versus what it cost in gold in the year 2000 and they found it was almost exactly the same meaning your home isn't worth more in gold it's worth more in dollars because your dollars are worth less that's why I refer to it as a hidden tax at least I, I, have, I hear a lot of economists refer to it as a hidden tax. Let me explain. Um, let's say I borrow $1,000 and I go and I buy gold. Let's say, just to make the numbers easy, gold is $500 now. So I, I borrow $1,000 and I buy two ounces of gold and I sit on them. And I wait and I wait and I wait. And finally, years later, you say, Paul, I need you to pay your $1,000 back. Well, at this point, because of inflation, the va- because the va- dollar value of the dollar is lower, gold isn't selling at $500 an ounce. It's selling at $1,000 an ounce. So I can sell one ounce of gold, give you your $1,000 back. I still have an ounce of gold. I've made $1,000 by paying you off in debased currency, currency that's worth less than it did before which is why the federal government likes moderate levels of inflation. I think the goal was the Federal Reserve's goal is 2% inflation because it means all the money that they're bar- that the federal government is borrowing, they're paying back in devalued dollars. The problem is by trying to keep that in balance, well, if there's one thing we've shown, the federal government is really bad at balancing anything. So when we heard the inflation report, the Consumer Price Index inflation rose by 0.4% in April of this year. That is up to 4.9% when compared with last year, which basically means pretty much what you buy, what a consumer buys is about 5% more expensive than it was last year on average. Basically means the U.S. dollar is worth 5% less this year when used for consumer uh, goods than it was last year. And again, these are a lot of averages. But you see, that's not the, the whole picture because the Bureau of Labor and Statistics cooks the books. There's no other way to put it. See, the Consumer Price Index, the one you keep hearing on the news, they, t- they pick specific products year over year that, are, that, that consumers purchase and they intentionally leave out the prices of things you use every day. The, the, the things that they consider more, most volatile, right? Well, things like energy costs, gas prices, um, and, and others. They kind of leave those out because, well, they tend to bounce the number around a lot. You've also, by the way, got the producer price index. Why is that important? Well, that's the, the, um, the inflation of the people that are buying stuff to build it for you. Think of it this way. The, inf- the CPI, the Consumer Price Index Inflation, is what you pay for uh, a can of beans. 
right? The producer price index is what the people who can the beans pay for the beans, for the aluminum that goes into the can, and, and other things like that, which means the producer price in, in index is a forecaster for what's coming up. And that's not looking too well either. But we all have this part. We have this because of a part of it is our crazy monetary policy. It's how much money that the Federal Reserve injects into the economy based on how much money the federal government is spending. You add money to economy, as it starts moving, it generates pressure to raise the inflation. You lower the, in, the, in, the uh, in interest rates, more money moves, pressure increases to increase inflation. You take, we've been doing that for so many years. We've been able to do that because as the reserve currency, those inflationary pressures were countered by everybody else soaking up all those dollars. As we see evidence that that may be changing, well, you can expect a, uh, a serious change in, in the inflation rate and not for the better. And, and again, it's not just that, that, that direct Federal Reserve. It's all the policies the federal government puts in place. Anybody remember when Obama said gave us was a cash for clunkers, and the idea was we we're going to get these these old gas guzzling cars off the road, and what it really did was just drive up the price of used cars because they were harder and harder to find. Anybody else remember back in two thousand eight when we had these these subprime mortgages that were uh, uh, fiscally unsound, but we kept trading them as if everything was fine. You know, we were lending me, lending money to people to get houses that were much larger than they could afford, but it was okay because we were the government was encouraging it. Well, what we're finding now is that as people's credit scores lower, as they become more dependent on debt, as the people are less fiscally sound, people are defaulting on their auto loans at a higher, race, a higher rate than, than previously seen. And in fact, it is predicted that their rates are soon going to reach the level that we saw for the mortgages in 2008. In other words, 2008, we had the housing crisis. In the next few years, we're going to have the auto loan crisis. And this one, again, partially driven by government policies, but partially driven by our own, our own standards. People borrowing money to purchase a car has become so ubiquitous. You walk into a car dealership. I, I did this several years ago. And told them, I'm not doing a loan. I'm going to pay for the car. I'm going to give you cash money. Tell me what the cost of the car is. And the salesperson couldn't calculate that. They had no idea. All they could come up with was well, so much a month. I'm not borrowing money. They were lost. I, by the way, refused to do business with that dealership ever again. So we're seeing th this idea of I can just, I don't have to have the money to buy a car. I'll just borrow it. But as we've been borrowing money for everything else, that drives down your credit score. The lower credit score means you're going to pay higher interest rates. And that's going to lead to another problem paying off the loans. But you see, that's not all. There's more stuff going on here. Anybody remember when Silicon Valley Bank closed? Right? They, they, they got taken over by the, the federal government basically said, nope, you're gone. We're taking you over. They did that to Signature Bank as well. Well, it, it appears that, uh, was it? I think it was Silicon Valley Bank was sold to J.P. Morgan Chase. I forget which one was. Which basically said, we took one of the largest banks in America and the federal government just made them bigger on the cheap. So we have the, the um, federal government first says, we're going to take over, we're going to shut down 
Silicon Valley Bank. And Joe Biden said, you've got FDIC insurance, but that's capped at $250,000 per account. Um, We're going to forget about that. We're going to pay everybody off. Everybody gets paid. Everybody gets paid. Then we have the FDIC saying, but we need more money now because we don't have the money for the insurance because the federal government just basically broke the insurance contract. Then we're going to take that bank and sell it on the cheap to one of the one of the few banks that are called, quoted, too big to fail, which means the J.P. Morgan Chase can once again, they can continue playing these crazy games because they know if they screw up, Joe, Ta- Joe and Jane taxpayer are going to cover the cost. They're going to cover the bill. Now, one of the things J.P. Um, uh, Morgan Chase has been uh, accused of is religious discrimination. See, 19... 19- a state attorneys general claimed that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase debanked conservative and religious organizations. This is this this DEI nonsense, the, going, coming to its logical conclusion. So now you have fewer local options because they get they the government helps get them sucked up into these giant corporations, and now these giant corporations say, "No, nah, I don't want to do business with you because I don't like your I don't like what you do." Now, as a private organization, I don't have a constitutional problem with that. The problem I have is when the government says, we're going to take local banks and we're going to help them get brought into these larger banks where I have fewer options to walk away from J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, according to a letter from these 19 AGs, uh, the National Committee for Religious Freedom, which is identified as a nonpartisan, faith-based nonprofit, um, they uh, they had their bank accounts closed three weeks after they opened them. And they were also asked to provide a list of their donors to the bank. Another one, uh, Family Council. Um, they also had their credit card processing terminated by Chase. In other words, if you wanted to buy something online or donate online with a credit card, they could no longer process credit cards. So as we watch while these these policies and these regulations keep moving people into large conglomerates rather than small local banks. Those banks wield tremendous amount of power. What happens when your opinion, your beliefs are no longer in favor with these banks? Now, I'll tell you what I do to help protect myself. One is I use multiple banks. I currently have three different banks I do business with. Two of them are local meaning we're not talking national change. They are local banks uh, with local people. I can walk in and say hello and talk to people because I, 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 I'm concerned. If one of them goes crazy, if one of them goes stupid, then I have someplace else to go with my money. If one of them decides to shut me down, I can simply transfer those, uh, the, those transactions, those accounts to another bank. In fact, um, the last one I added to my list, um, it was just before... Uh, was there some banking brouhaha? And uh, I remember. Oh, I'm sorry. It was it was it was SVB. It's it's the, their exposure, uh, their their crazy exposure to to uh, government interest rates. I went to a banker at this bank and I said, "Listen, I'm considering opening account. Tell me, are you exposed here?" And they went to their their people and they just no, we are not overly exposed there. We are more diversified. So I did business with them. Yes, it took some extra time. Yes, it took some extra work. 
but it means that if they go stupid, I've got somewhere else to go. If one of my other banks goes stupid, I can transfer the money, I can transfer the services, I can transfer them somewhere else. Diversity of, not just, not diversity based on color or, or anything. Diversity is I have multiple places to go, multiple places. Redundancy is what we used to call it in the, in the IT world, right? You always wanted redundancy. You didn't want one failure to take everything down. Now, before I wrap up today, I have seen some moves to help mitigate some of these problems. Not so much the federal debt, but Indiana has joined a list of states that are outlawing the use of central bank digital currencies. Um, they're not they're not considered money within the state. So you, you probably heard a lot about central bank digital currencies. Uh, to me, they are they, they are literally the destruction of the of the republic. They are the destruction of, of freedom and liberty. Um, but the the states which are they have what's called the Uniform Commercial Code, and these are a set of laws that um, states adopt to help them do business between each other. Well, Indiana again, they joined uh, a list of states. I think Florida is one. Uh, I can't remember the others off the top of my head. But within the Uniform Commercial Code, they have a definition for money. And CBDCs are not on that list. They are not a definition of money. In fact, the law specifically amends their Uniform Commercial Code to say that uh, the term does not, the money does not include a central bank digital currency that is currently adopted or that may be adopted by the United States government, foreign government, a foreign reserve, or foreign sanctioned central bank. Why is this important? Well, this goes hand in hand with states that have also been trying to set up um, gold and silver as money. They start out with with uh, depositories, a place where the the state and often the public can go and deposit gold. Uh, they can purchase gold and set them up to act more as that as that bank, so that you have a more stable way of doing business since the state since the value of gold doesn't really change in inherently what changes is how many dollars it takes to buy a certain amount of gold it it, it gives them the, the ability to protect themselves from these actions of the federal reserve and a lot of people are very interested in that but what is interesting is the constitution says that um they can that the states can use gold and silver coin as money uh, now, the interesting thing is coin is not simply a, a, a coin, right? Not, not the physical entity. Coin is, is, to, you make, is how you make something. So you, you, you coin up money. That's what they're talking about. It, it, what I'm trying to say is it, it does stand up to constitutional muster. And they're seeing more and more states pushing back against the CBDC by first saying that's not money here. And second, by giving their citizens another option, something else they can use to protect themselves from the profligate spending, the ridiculous fiscal and monetary policies coming out of Washington, D.C., and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. It gives them some protections. And I like it. It's the very idea of federalism. Let the states try different things and then let them learn from each other. Now, I hope you enjoyed or at least tolerated this discussion. It was a little different than, than a lot of things I do, but I think 
a basic understanding of of the debt limit, the 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 debt and deficit, fiscal policy, inflation. I think it's important to being a free citizen, to knowing what the government is doing with your money. The government doesn't have any money they don't first take from us. And if that's something you find helpful, well, maybe you'll bring some friends. Well, you can all listen to the Constitution Study every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard in the iHeart Radio Network. Now, if you can't listen then, well, you can always listen to the podcast. See, all the episodes go to podcast generally a day or two after they're heard on talk radio. You can listen with your favorite podcast app, but do me a favor. Subscribe to the show. Give me a rating or a review. One, the subscriptions are how we, we get identified by, by other businesses. They look at how many subscriptions you have. But it also helps people find the Constitution study as well. When you search for podcasts on a specific t- subject, the ones with more subscriptions and more list ratings are going to end up higher in the list. So you can help expand the reach of the Constitution study by simply subscribing to the podcast and giving me a rating and review. You can find all the links you need at the homepage at AmericaOutloud.com. But I'm going to ask you to please share that information. Let other people know this information is out there. See, it's by sharing this news, by sharing this information, that we together can share the blessings of liberty throughout this great nation, from sea to shining sea. <music>